This episode of Asymmetrical Haircuts is supported by JusticeInfo.net. You want to know something about the Kosovo court, but at the moment, no one knows what's happening. And that's part of part of his history or part of, uh, part of what's going on now. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments, false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All right. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. Well, you've been asking me since the start of our podcast what is going on with the Kosovo Tribunal. Yes, I cycle past it practically every day and um, I've seen all the work going on and then... Um, and it's a fascinating thing in itself, and, and I just want to know more. So, well, a little while back, you remember we sat down with Mai Grasten, associate professor of Copenhagen Business School, whose research straddles international relations and international law, and she's looked into transitional justice in Kosovo. Yeah, it was a great interview. Really enjoyed. Yeah, we had a good chat, but then uh, we need to give you a heads up before we start this episode because, you know, of course, after years of nothing new from the Kosovo court, suddenly, just after we talked to Mai, stuff started happening. Um, for one, a new government was formed with the populist left-wing Prime Minister Albin Kurti, which was imminent when we talked to Mai, but hadn't actually happened. And the really big news is the Kosovo prosecutor announced that he would start issuing indictments which are all still under seal, so we don't know for whom and who is targeted and what exactly they're for. Yeah, it's so exciting, isn't it, to uh, to hear all these uh, developments. I wanted to put a drum roll on what you said there, but I didn't know quite how to. Um, but when I remember when we were talking to Mai, she told us a lot about the... Um, yeah, the background to it, why the court was set up itself, what its relation was to the other transitional justice uh, experiments that have happened in Kosovo. So we are going to uh, air this episode, um, but I understand we've just got to warn people that we recorded it before these developments happened, which we don't know actually what's in the indictments, we don't know who's targeted, so we wouldn't be able to speculate on them anyway. No, so when this is just a heads up so that you're not thinking like, why are they not talking about the one thing that finally happened at the Kosovo court? We didn't quite know yet. But as you recall, I asked you to keep Mai and me from geeking out on Kosovo transitional justice and keep us on track and not go into the super tiny details. I did my best. And you did, and you graciously accepted to ask the Kosovo for dummies questions. So let's have the uh, basics first. Um, oh, come on, where is Kosovo and why is Kosovo? Well, Kosovo is a, was a province of Serbia and mainly ethnic Albanian. In 1998-99, there was a Serbian military crackdown on the province after years of low-level repression of ethnic Albanians in the state. Um, there was resistance by the Kosovo Liberation Army, known as the KLA, and overall, uh, some estimated 13,000 deaths and a mass exodus of Kosovo Albanians to other countries. And then NATO intervened and Serbia withdrew from Kosovo. After years of international administration, Kosovo declared independence in 2008. It's not universally recognized, especially not by Serbia and its allies. And what about on the justice fronts? Because um, uh, my impression from the outside is there's been a fair bit of experimentation, hasn't there, Mai, in this field of accountability? What's been tried? I mean, everything in the case of Kosovo has been tried. It's it's really interesting. Uh, for me or for, for a host of, of scholars, Kosovo keep being, being a puzzle. Um, 
Um, Kosovo was quite early in, in the history of international intervention, sort of labeled as a, as a laboratory for global governance. Uh, it was the first for so many things, especially when we turned to law. It was the first of international transitional administration with a massive uh, mandate, uh, which was granted to the UN. It was the first of hybridized international uh, criminal uh, tribunals or criminal courts. Uh, it was the first of, a, of the biggest uh, EU um, civilian management uh, mission uh, in the history of EU uh, external affairs. Um, so, so there's not a first around Kosovo, but to understand Kosovo, you also have to graft it into the history of, of what happened in the 90s with this sort of renewed activism in the UN Security Council and the form, uh, formulation of the EU foreign policy um, uh, program. Can I just check in, though, from my perspective? I can remember there's this acronym, ULEX, is, and that, that's come in various forms. That, that's what we're talking about, partly on the justice front. Yep. Yes. So that's the EU's uh, rule of law mission to Kosovo. And what about this latest iteration? Uh, it's the Kosovo Specialist Chambers. Have I got that right? And, and where does that fit in? Right. So uh, the Kosovo Specialist Chambers, or often referred to as just now the Kosovo Courts. Okay, uh, let's call it that for goodness <laughs> sake from now on. Exactly. Um, it's, oh my God. I mean, you, you first asked, you, you want to know something about the Kosovo Court, but at the moment, no one knows what's happening. And that's part of, part of his history or part of, uh, part of what's going on now. Um, well, why don't we start with why they decided that, that it was needed? I mean, th there were already some cases at the Yugoslav Tribunal, the ICTY, right. but there was witness intimidation, wasn't there? Is, is that why we've got this Kosovo court? Um, it's, it's part of the, the answer to, to why. I mean, first, first there's, there's different tracks in sort of the involvement of hybridized judicial institutions in the case of Kosovo. And the first one was actually UNMIC, uh, which in 2000 uh, deployed the first international judges in a, in a case of post-conflict transitional justice uh, reforms, uh, the, the so-called 64 panels. The UNMIC is the UN mission to Kosovo. That's the yeah. acronym. So there's going to be a lot of acronyms oh, in Kosovo I mean, always. Is, international politics is just, you know, you need a vocabulary or you need a dictionary sometimes. Um, but that was like the first time um, you really had these sort of internationalized courts grafted into a domestic judicial order. Um, and sort of the, 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 the ideology, if you want, was local ownership, right? Bring justice close to the victims. Um, so the UN did this in, in case of Kosovo uh, until 2008, um, where in the event of Kosovo's unilaterally declared independence, the UN or the UNMIC mission was replaced by EULEX. But there was a continuation of these hybridized courts. Um, and so the Kosovo court is quite interesting because one question uh, that pops up is like, why didn't they just leave the sort of the mandate or, or the cases that's been granted to the new Kosovo court in the domestic judicial uh, system where there was already international institutions and international lawyers working on similar cases? Yes. And, and why? why um, one thing is to come back to victim intimidation. Right. Um, so the Kosovo court is really interesting because its mandate is very narrow. 
is being accused of being ethnically biased by Kosovo political elite because it's it's only targeting or it's only addressing uh, former KLA members, uh, members of Kosovo's Liberation Army, which effectively is the political elite today in, in Kosovo and has been since 1999 when the war ended. And so to, to go for basically the political elite, there was an idea that to do so, space would matter, right? Uh, it would be easier to, to ensure witness protection if this court was placed in where it's placed now, The Hague. And that to add, I mean, you've been to Kosovo and I've been to Kosovo. It's a tiny, tiny country. There's uh, not a lot of people there and everybody knows everybody's business. So even if you don't have direct witness intimidation, um, if you go to testify at the court in Pristina and you come from a very small t uh, village in Kosovo, your neighbors are all going to know that you left that morning to Pristina in a very nice suit and you were picked up by cars with ULEX plates. And I mean, it's almost impossible to keep that kind of information out. And in, in, in a couple of the UNMEC and ULEX cases, there were witnesses who kind of mid-trial changed their testimony and not necessarily um, some, there were some uh, proof of outright intimidation, but there is also the difference of saying something to investigators and actually having to go to court and say it and know that it will be public all over. Exactly. What is interesting here is that the ICTY has always uh, struggled with victim intimidation, and the ICTY has always been placed in the Hague, right? So, 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 does it really matter? I mean, so uh, another story and more political chart story was that EULEX, who could actually have taken these cases and who are already international prosecutors and forensics and judges and what have you on the ground had been so mirrored in controversies, um, cases of corruption in its senior uh, management within the mission, uh, cases of international judges taking, taking bribes. And so it sort of had lost its, its legitimacy, if you want, right? Uh, so this is a kind of a last gasp attempt to, uh, to do something that's, that, that's is whiter than white and that is kept clean. But Stephanie, wasn't there a particular kind of um, tipping point that pushed us towards this court? court? Yes, there's always been kind of festering that ULEX and UNMEC uh, law and accountability wasn't going quite as planned in Kosovo. But then in 2008, uh, there came this book by the former ICTY, the Yugoslav Tribunal Prosecutor, Carla Del Ponte, called The Hunt, Me and the War Criminals. And in that, she kind of gives an overview of her time. It's really a kind of legacy book. But she basically says, we had information that there was organ trafficking, illegal organ trafficking from Serbian prisoners by KLA members uh, who took organs from Serbian prisoners and sold them on the black market abroad. And we couldn't uh, follow it up in the ICTY because it had to close down because it, the UN was stopping money to it and it had a closing strategy. And that's why we didn't do it. And then there, of course, was a lot of outrage in Serbia had been raging or had been saying for years that there was something going on in Serbia. It's called very much related to the Juta Kuća, the yellow house where they have, this is the house where apparently the organs were harvested. In Albania. So, in Albania. And so the Serbs were very much like, there you go. Finally, we have this evidence. And now you don't do anything. You know, there you go. Obviously, Again, a bias. It's, all biased. it's all biased. It's always us. And when it's us, you never do anything. So this led to a Council of Europe report on the case known as the Marti report after the guy who wrote it, which basically said there are indications of organ trafficking and other criminal activity 
implicating some of the most senior KLA leaders. And as Mai just said, those are now the people running Kosovo politically as well. But Mai, what I still don't get out of that um, is that we've got this set of uh, honestly quite thin allegations. No, say they they should be um, investigated, but they really implicate this top elite. Why would Kosovan leadership go along with the setting up of a court like this. It's not in their interest. I mean, that's two things. The allegations are actually not that thin. Um, so there's a very important, in this timeline of 2008, you know, in the Madame Prosecutor's um, book, um, Phil Pondiff said there was evidence. And then the DeMari report, uh, right after um, a special investigative task force was uh, was deployed to, to sort of... Um, investigate these uh, these allegations. And so in the middle of 2014, a very important report came out of it where they said there was actually evidence uh, for for um, uh, sort of um, illegal trafficking in human organs, but also torture and, um, and murders that have been taking place in these uh, prisoner camps. To some extent, the evidence is there. And now the problem is that it's been taking so much time to re-establish or establish a total new court that that the observers are afraid that you know they missed sort of they missed the train a little bit because evidence or witness statements uh, are getting um are getting old if you want right or witnesses are changing their, their stories and so on uh secondly um why were there i mean there was a quite bumpy road uh, in the kosovo's assembly or kosovo's parliament uh to pass the laws uh that would provide the jurisdictional grounds for this court, right? Um, the fact that the court is placed in Hague, um, or the court is placed in Hague, but it's indeed crafted, or in fact crafted into Kosovo's uh, judicial uh, order, right? So it's effectively a Kosovo court. Um, so Kosovo had to change its, uh, its, or amend its constitution uh, to pave the way for the, for the court. And that took uh, a lot of negotiations uh, in Kosovo's assembly. I think what, what Janet is really asking for, and, and, and I also reported on that when they were doing the thing, basically this was under huge pressure from the European exactly. Union and the US. Exactly. And the Americans. And the yeah. Americans, And yes. I really see this this external pressure. I mean, there are all kinds of parallels that you can think of, but it's really not in the self-interest of the ruling elite. Or, or is it? Well, I mean, the external pressure, and this is, I mean, this is this is not even a secret. Everyone talks about it, right? That there's been a massive international uh, pressure from from specific EU member states, from the EU, from the US in particular. And then and it, it helps the politicians because they say we only signed this because right, the EU made us. Like I didn't want to do it, so right. uh, it's a very unpopular court. So you know, I took my hand. I had to sign it because otherwise, the, you know, we wouldn't get visa regime or all these things. Mm -hmm. So it, it's obvious to everybody how this works. This external pressure has always been the case in Kosovo, right? The US is funding Kosovo heavily, right? So there's very important material interests interest here. Uh, the EU has the last almost decade had the visa liberalization um, negotiations, uh, the special dialogue between Kosovo and Serbia, which is managed by the EU. Um, uh, the 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 prospect of EU membership, which is uh, which is not that good, but but still is always part of the sort of the the discourse, if you want. Uh, and it's quite interesting when you look through sort of the EU or, or various uh, EU membership. 
uh, embassy sort of policy statements on this court, that always talks about the future, right? If Kosovo uh, wants to have a pros uh, you know, prospect and a, and, a, and a sort of a European future, they should, you know, sign up to this uh, disagreement, right? Um, so, so I mean, this is classic EU policy, right? Is sort of the the carrot and the stick, right? So that's always been sort of uh, instrumental in its uh, accession and, and EU enlargement uh, process. And Kosovo is is is, is another case of, of this sort of policy. Okay, so then we get to this point, which I think you already started with, Mai, which is you know the fact that nothing seems to be going on is what is going on at the court. So what is going on? Well, we had a bit of a thing where we had uh, one uh, prosecutor who also was at the hybrid court, war crimes court in Bosnia, David Schwendiman, who was who was took this on and was the first prosecutor, and he was doing quite a good job. And he told us I think two years ago when we spoke with journalists oh, with yes. him that he was like ready to kind of I'm really gearing up to put out indictments but then um, kind of life intervened and, and global politics because there was some kind of change with the Trump administration and the State Department and he couldn't stay on because he was already retired and was called out of retirement and they didn't want to uh, prolong his tenure and so quite unexpectedly while he was gear doing his gearing up he uh, had to leave as prosecutor if he wanted to keep on to his pension I think which he did and then they had to find another U.S. prosecutor. So they took. So it started again. It, it started again. They, okay. he, they took somebody. It took a couple of months to find somebody, and then that person arrives. And there could be all these files that are ready, but he has to read through all of them and, and figure out if he would make the same choices as as Swindiman would make. Well, here's the update. Uh, the prosecutor, Jack Smith, I don't believe that name, um, has since announced that he has filed indictments, not just one, but several indictments, but they are being kept confidential and the court is reviewing them. Yeah, the judges will first have to approve the indictments, then they could start issuing arrest warrants, but they could also be under seal. So uh, it could be months before we know any names or could really say anything about those indictments. But in the run-up to the election, there was a lot of discussion in uh, Kosovo politics about the possibility of these indictments. So we talked to Mai about that. The reason why, for instance, we had we had elections in Kosovo in, in October uh, last year was because of the courts. So, of course, it's doing a lot, but it's more presence, right? Uh, and that was because Haradinaj, the then prime minister, uh, he resigned in June, uh, sorry, July last year because he was summoned um, for a, for um, interview or for yeah to be interviewed uh, in in the Hague, right? Yeah, basically, what the new prosecutor has now done, which is seems like a new strategy to me, is that he started kind of uh, inviting all these uh, former KLA commanders and and people that knew what was going on in the war to talk to him, either as a suspect or as a witness, and sometimes but, uh, both. But and how do you know whether they're a well, suspect they, or a witness? Well, some they tell you. Okay. Um, so in the case, uh, this the court doesn't say anything about it. They say they have ongoing conversations, but they always have. But in Kosovo media, people are now, and former KLA members are now starting to speak, or were starting to speak and starting to announce that they were called to The Hague and all that. So it's, I think the count is that about 120 witnesses slash suspects have been called. And for in the case of Haradinaj, Ramush Haradinaj, who was Kosovo's uh, prime minister at the time, um, who was already also uh, indicted by the ICTY but acquitted. 
um, in a trial, also allegedly marred by witness intimidation. He was called, and they told him it was as a suspect, and then he made a dramatic, you know, I was called as a suspect, I must now step down, and we should have elections in Kosovo. So they had their elections, and after months of talks, it's emerged that Albin Kurti, as we had speculated, has formed a government. Um, we talked to Mai also about that, and she said that it could herald a new chapter in the Kosovo politicians' approach to the court. Because Vitvin Dushi is famously known for having a very strong uh, stance on sort of international, uh, the international community or the involvement of international actors in domestic affairs in Kosovo. And so he has been uh, very critical uh, against the courts. Uh, he's not critical against the fact that we need transitional justice in the case of Kosovo, and that also includes the political elite. Uh, he's always been sort of in opposition to this sort of KLA political elite, but he wants this to happen in Kosovo. He's a very interesting guy, Kurti. He's a former uh, student leader who is very charismatic and Vedvendosh is kind of populist but very left-wing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing of contradiction. But it's, so he has always been extremely against this tribunal. So I'm now kind of wondering what does that change? Um, you know, there's a chance he doesn't like uh, the KLA elite, so he might be happy to send them somewhere. Or will he keep to his... Uh, roots and his self-determination roots and want to do it himself in Kosovo. Can he do it in Kosovo? He's, Vedvendash is the biggest party now, right? So, so of course there are some, you know, uh, some loyalty to his constituency uh, around this uh, sort of non-international intervention uh, policy that they have, that's always formed their political agenda. So it would be very unlikely that he will sort of, you know, move away from this one. So as in all these situations, right, he might have to sort of do, do some, some sort of negotiations. Um, but at the same time, he will follow the line of a very pronounced uh, critique uh, against the Kosovo court. Yeah, and you follow also very much the international community. Is there still an appetite for this court? I mean, the U.S. has moved away from kind of international law and international law interventions and are not so much into the rule of law themselves these days, it seems to be. Who is now championing this court? I mean, the EU has already posted a lot of money in this court, right? And uh, the, the mandate of the court will run out in this, this summer uh, and would, I mean... There's no no question it wouldn't be be renewed, right? Because it is it is sort of soon something will happen. Or that that's at least the feeling around the court, right? So, but it's that's um, been the feeling since for two years. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I need it's been my feeling. I had this like you know we prepare and we have these urgents and snaps up, and every couple of months I'm like we should really have this Kosovo snap up because so long that nothing's happening. I mean, it's now nearly 12 years since Carlo de Lupanda's allegations. It's over eight years since the Dick Marty report. It's, uh, it's nearly six years since this important uh, benchmark report that was made by um, Clint Williamson, who was the lead prosecutor of the Special Investigative Tax, uh, Task Force. It's five years since the court was approved in Kosovo's assembly. And so, I mean, I, I read an article the other day where someone referred to the court as a ghost court, right? So, but something will happen. I mean, there's 100 people working in, uh, in, uh, in, its, uh, in the prosecutor's office um, in The Hague. 
Um, Can I be deeply cynical, Mai, and yes. uh, say, is this not just, again, jobs for the boys um, in uh, in terms of, of justice, the justice community? Again, we've got, uh, is it not just a, yeah, something has to be done. We're going to pretend mm. that it's being done and we're going to, and, and nothing will actually achieve, be achieved at the end. Yeah, and then, we, and then we have something to rule. So we kind of whitewashed Kosovo's history. We didn't do, just do Victor's justice or we, we also looked at the KLA and uh, we have the Serbs kind of taken care of by the ICTY. And so then we just all move on because all sides have been judged. This is sort of a test case for to what extent can international organizations, international courts and individual but powerful member states do something about this. Um, Unmake tried, uh, but this sort of left the, the, the war crime cases uh, which were uh, which involved Kosovo Albanians to EULEX. EULEX tried, but it pushed the Kosovo uh, sorry, the war crime cases against Kosovo Albanians now towards this uh, new Kosovo court. So there's you know, since two thousand where was the first time we had uh, internationalized courts in, in the case in, in Kosovo, no one has been able to to actually, you know, get get to, to do these cases. Um, so will this last and third instance be able to do so? It's, it's hard to say, but it's, it's, a, it's a big test. Um, okay, well then one, I think my final question to try and understand this, if you had to put your money on when we're actually gonna see a case, give me a month and a year, Mai, when's it gonna happen? Um, I, I've, oh gosh, I think that's one of the, the hardest questions. I've been following this court very closely for some years now. Um, really too I difficult to say. It is, I don't know, um, hopefully by the end of the year. What do you um, think, Stephanie? I mean, all the judges to the specialist chambers have been appointed. Yeah. Um, Everything's ready for them to start. Right. They had all the invest. I think they might wait until a government is formed so they know who they're dealing with in terms of authorities, but then they really have to start getting something out. Okay, so this might be the year that we actually get something. Okay, I will look out for this then. <laughs> I will start to believe in this court if something starts to happen this year, Mike. <laughs> Me too, hopefully. In the meantime, we usually ask our contributors um, some specific questions. And... Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> we always throw everybody off in the deep end, so they're not preparable. So the first question is um, related to your own work uh, that you do. When you're talking to people about what you do at a party or something, what does everybody get wrong about it? What do they imagine that you do that they always get wrong? One thing maybe, I've been working on, on Kosovo and sort of um, the state, the role of law in the state building process for quite some years now. And I think one thing I always find uh, curious is that people often talk about Kosovo as a sui generis case. Right? It's so exceptional in, in I mean, the, the NATO uh, intervention and how respectively it was assessed as being illegal but illegitimate is so uh, particular in sort of the, 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 the powers assumed by the UN uh, for the next eight and a half years after, after the end of the war and so on and so forth. Um, but I don't think Kosovo is that, is that particular. I, I, it does sort of... Um, 
demonstrate that that politics had indeed uh, or in international law had changed at, at that moment in time by the end of the 90s but you can only understand Kosovo by inscribing it into uh, a longer historical political development um, and it very much reflects uh, both what happened before for instance in the case of uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina and the international administration was put in place there and how and how law was perceived as as a quite a political tool, right? I remember Carl Bildt, he said the, uh, the constitution of, of uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina is a constitution by international decree. And so we saw very much the same approach to rule of law and transitional justice as a very political issue in the case of Kosovo. And we have seen it since in the case of Iraq and, and so forth. So I think that's one thing. Um, I think Kosovo is just a, it's a bit of a microcosmos or it's a snapshot of where we are now in international law and international politics. We can still study it and we can still learn it very much from, from the case of Kosovo. And what didn't we ask you, but we really should have? Or did we cover everything? All right, okay, that's another very <laughs> hard question. Um, I think maybe another thing which uh, I think is important to focus on in understanding, for instance, the Kosovo court. Uh, and this is very much informed uh, my research, which is situated in social legal studies, is that to really understand what's going on in these different political struggles, we often have to open the black box of various institutions, for instance, the court or international missions, and look inside and look at the everyday of, of, of you know, understanding the rule of law, the everyday of setting up uh, institutional structures uh, related to transitional justice, and also look at the plurality of perceptions of, for instance, transitional justice or hybrid justice or ownership uh, in these different institutions. We cannot just black box them, and uh, there's much more contestation often uh, going on at the ground, right? And the final question is, have you seen, read or heard something recently that you'd like to recommend to other people? And it doesn't have to be of the field, but of course it can be. But if you do something completely different from international law or state building uh, to relax, we also love to hear about that. We had somebody who read Buddhist texts and another person who read zombie novels. Oh, <laughs> right. Um, I mean science fiction, right? Zombies, unicorns, you know, they're all these kind of hybridized weird beasts. And I think a, a, a court similar to, to the Kosovo court, which is made up of these different fragments of, of internationalized and domestic elements, uh, you can understand that through, through uh, probably reading science fiction. I think uh, we've got our title for the podcast, uh, the Zom Kosovo, the zombie court. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's a good one. I might use that as well. No, but otherwise, I think, I think you know, literature in international criminal justice and international criminal law at the moment is super exciting because there's a lot of questions asked um, uh, related to gender, related to race, related to the political economy of international criminal justice, related to the colonial or the, like historical legacies of the institutions uh, we see today and how they're justified. Uh, and so that's really, I think that's really great. And I think these are a lot of the literature we need to draw on to understand something like how is this Kosovo court, you know, how did it, how was it established, how is it justified even, right, by international actors? Uh, how is it? How is how has it become normalized to have such a such a court, right? Located in the Hague, staffed by international uh, lawyers or legal advisors, 
but indeed a, a domestic court, you know, grafted into Kosovo's judicial order. Uh, that's quite interesting, and I think to understand that you, I mean, these different aspects of the political economy of it, right, the material interest, international pressure, uh, the colonial legacies of similar sort of um, institutions uh, are very interesting and very helpful. Well, thanks very much for helping guide us through all of those questions and for bearing with me as the, uh, as the, the person who needed the dummy explanation. And uh, thanks both for being so expert about it. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.